reflect upon your service to us. You sent forth in the fullness of time the Lord Jesus not to be served, uh, but to serve and to give himself as a ransom for many. We pray that we would humble ourselves now at his feet, that we would receive all that he has to teach us, that he would convict us, that your spirit would move in our hearts and illuminate the cold and dark corners of it. We pray that all of our hearts and all of our lives and all of us together as your people would be consecrated afresh for your service. After all, we serve one who has first served us. We love one who has first loved us. And we ask that your blessing would be upon us as we sit under your teaching. And we make our prayer together in Jesus' name. Amen. Very good. So let's turn, shall we, to our New Testament lesson. It comes from Ephesians. First, a little bit from chapter 5, and then ultimately a couple verses in chapter 6. So if you've been around here in the evenings, Sam has been taking us through Daniel. And I wanted to pick something that would hopefully fit well with what, uh, what Sam has been doing in Daniel, but not you know, steal his passages and things. And I thought Daniel has been serving a king who is not always good and who's not always the same king. And sometimes he has favor and sometimes he doesn't. But he goes to work for a foreign pagan king every day and somehow manages to commit the work that he does in purity and in holiness to the God of Israel and remains faithful to it. I think Paul teaches us something of this in this passage here. So let's read, shall we? First from Ephesians 5.21, just to give us the context. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then chapter 6, verse 5 through 8. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but as slaves of Christ doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever they do, whether they are slave or free. Very good. Before I came here to um, Switzerland, I lived in Korea for three years, and I had the privilege of teaching high schoolers there. Um, My high school principal happened to be uh, one of my parishioners from my church in South Carolina, and he went off to Korea, and then about a year later, uh, I followed him there, and then he became my boss. I was his pastor, and then he was my boss. He was a great boss, a fantastic boss. And when we started teaching under him, whenever a new crop of teachers would come through, and that was lots of them every year, he would pull us all together, all of us new people, and he would say, listen, here's how it works under my leadership. And we thought, oh, we're going to get a real, like, lecture here, right? He's going to be like, you're going to straighten up, you're going to fly right, and all these things. He said, no. Around here, under my leadership, you have three permissions, three permissions. 
He said, you have permission to breathe, permission to fail, and permission to be human. Now, can you imagine starting a new job, and you show up, and your boss gives you the orientation, and that's the first thing that he says? You'd go from, like, jitters and, like, what's this going to be like, to all of a sudden, literally, you can breathe again. This is going to be okay. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about my boss in a bit here. I think our passage here calls us to do a couple things, um, to put it in outline form with a nice alliteration, as I like to do, being a nerdy preacher. I think this passage is calling us to lock in, leave behind, and look to. Lock in, leave behind, look to. Lock in, first of all, to our submissive service. Second, to leave behind our lust for power. And then lastly, to look to Christ and his servant lordship, his servant kingship, as we've just sung about. So lock in, leave behind, look to. So let's take a look, shall we? Let's lock in first to our submissive service. This happens especially in uh, verses 5 through 8. We need to get something out of the way here uh, briefly, and that is the translation I was reading says, slaves obey your earthly masters. Maybe some of you have translations that say servant. I can't unpack for you all of the nuances of first century slavery slash servanthood, but I can tell you that it's not exactly like what we think of as slavery in, say, the 17th, the 18th centuries, the 19th centuries in the Atlantic world that we're familiar with. Um, Sometimes slaves very bodies and lives were owned by their masters, kind of in that chattel slavery that we're familiar with. But other times, people would sell themselves into slavery, into service, in order to pay off debts that they weren't able to pay off otherwise. And so their masters had control not of their lives, but of their labor. They punched the time clock, they owed their master X amount of hours of work each day, and that was the conditions of their slavery or their servanthood. And when you think about it in that way, uh, both the I own your body and your life kind of slavery and then the servanthood you owe um, labor to your boss way, then uh, the scholars tell us that perhaps the broad category of slaves, they might have outnumbered free people in Ephesus at the time when this letter is written. So it's not just this tiny subset of people that Paul is talking to here, slaves and masters. He's talking to like the majority of the population, perhaps. Startling for us to think. But of course, like most of your uh, present-day Bible teachers would do, I'm going to try to draw some uh, application for us in our situations, in our social circumstances, in our labor situation today. Most of us make a deal with our employers, right, when we sign a contract Most of us do what? We trade our embodied time for our employer's money. That's the deal. You get some time, I get some money. They own the labor that your body or your mind can put out for a certain amount of time, and then they owe you a paycheck at the end of it. Paul says here, hey, that work that you have to submit to your boss, with your body, and with your mind. You know you own that. But I'm going to up the ante. I'm going to make it even a bigger deal here. You know what I want from you? You know what the Lord Jesus wants from you. I want your heart. 
The Lord Jesus wants your heart, not just your body and not just your mind, to submit to your, uh, your um, boss. Paul says that we must have, verse 5, sincere hearts as we obey our earthly masters. In verse 6, he says that we are not to give mere eye service. And I think this means two things. It means that we're not supposed to work just when we're being watched and then slack off when we're not being watched, right? But I think it also has a deeper sense to it, right? The eye, after all, is a mysterious thing. That's why we don't look in each other's eyes for very long, because it's awkward. (laughs) Because it's the window into our souls, after all. When we smile and we obey with our eyes, we kind of give eye service. When we give all the necessary bows and the deferential, superficial submission to our bosses, but we don't actually do our work for them from the heart, we're faking it, of course, right? We're using our eyes and we're bearing false witness about what's really going on in our hearts. We're faking it. And by extension, when we give reports to our bosses and we make our work look great superficially, while we've really been spending most of our time, as much as we can get away with, slacking off, while our heart has been in a million places besides engaged there in our work that we've been called to, then we're lying, aren't we, to our bosses. We're lying to our bosses. We're saying, I'm really great. Give me my money and give me the praise and recommendations that I want. Be a good reference when I leave you and go find another boss. But we know we're faking it. So the question is, how in the world, especially if I have kind of like a mediocre or even crummy boss, how can I give my heart to my boss? Is that really a thing? How can I do it? The answer is that, well, like everything else in the Christian life, the resources for doing these almost impossible things, handing your heart, in a sense, to your boss, doesn't find itself in the world. How in the world can you do it? Well, you need to go outside of the world to do it. The one to whom we are ultimately giving our heart is not, after all, in this world. We are called to submit to our boss's leadership and to their authority from the heart, but we're actually not told to give them our hearts. Why? We must give heartful and heartfelt service to the people that employ us, but our hearts already belong to someone else, don't they? They belong to another. Our hearts belong, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus calls us, therefore, through the Spirit and through the pen of Paul here, to give who our hearts? To give him our hearts. How? Through the giving of our heartful submission to our bosses, even our crummy bosses. See what's going on here? My heart belongs to Jesus. I'm going to give Jesus my heart through the giving of heartfelt, heartful, full-hearted, if you will, service to the one that employs me. Our bodies might not be bonded contractually to our bosses temporarily, but our hearts belong to someone completely, and not just temporarily, but for eternity. They belong, we belong, don't we? Heart and soul, body, mind, and spirit to our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And yes, our bodies belong to him as well. And that, and only that, like all of us are going to have to get up here in like, what, 12 hours or so and face a new week and give our work and our labor, maybe you have Monday off, I don't know, but most of us are going to have to do this tomorrow. And not everyone's looking forward to it from the looks of your faces. How do we do it? This, the fact that our hearts belong to Jesus, enables us to get up and go to work on a Monday morning and say, I am going to do my very best today. With a submissive posture and a diligent hand, I'm going to render meaningful service to the people that are my superiors. Because, after all, I am bound to Jesus. And Jesus receives my submission to my boss as if it were submission to him. My boss may not pay me enough, and he might even cheat me out of wages from time to time, but in the Lord Jesus, I am receiving what? I'm receiving an inheritance that's unmatched, an inheritance of glory. I can never be cheated out of that. My boss may not recognize the heartfelt and heartful service and work that I provide to her or him, but even while I'm doing it, and even while they're oblivious to the way that I'm doing it, I can hear the voice of the Lord Jesus saying to me, well done, good and faithful servant. Keep it up. You're doing this as unto me. And after all, that's the affirmation that we live for. We don't live for paychecks. We don't live for weekends. We don't even live for the affirmations of others. We live for the affirmation, well done, good and faithful servant, from the only boss of our hearts and minds, souls, strengths, and bodies, the Lord Jesus. So a couple of practical applications. You're probably thinking, practical? That, all of this so far has been practical applications. Jeez, lay off me. Here's some, here's some ideas. Take them or leave them as they fit you. You might consider doing, before you walk into work, a little commissioning service, a private little commissioning service before you start your job. Take a moment before you begin your work and set yourself apart for the tasks that are at hand. Consecrate yourself even to service of your lousy boss, if they're lousy. And consecrate yourself most of all to your faithful Lord Jesus instead. And then at the end of the day, spend a minute on your commute coming home and just reflect and if necessary repent for any words and actions and attitudes that you displayed that day that were not consecrated to the Lord Jesus. Right? But you also might, from time to time, do a practical audit of yourself, of your words, attitudes, and actions. You might ask yourself periodically, maybe once a month, am I cheating my boss by cheating the time clock? Am I trying to impress my boss by staying late while I'm actually being less productive than the people who leave earlier than me? That actually, by the way, was a big problem in Korea. That was the way you did things. You stayed forever and did hardly anything if you could get away with it. Is surfing the web and liking posts on Facebook in my job description? (laughs) Right? Are we... Are we knowledge workers like most of us 
many of us anyway, are, then we especially owe our bosses not just our bodily presence in our jobs, but what? We owe them our minds and our creativity. That's what we've contracted to give them. Our thoughts and our minds and our, our creativity. Are we cheating our bosses out of our creativity because we're preoccupied with, you name it, boys, girls, sports, politics? I don't know what it is. But I know that the answer for me is often, yeah, I kind of am cheating them out of it. And when I think about it, I'm standing in a way in front of all of my bosses right here. So I repent. If, our, if on our resumes we had, we had to put a pie chart, right, of the amount of focused, creative, engaged attention that we give to our work versus the amount of distraction that we're indulging in, what would that pie chart look like? These are good things to ask ourselves. If our boss, or if the Lord Jesus, went through our browsing history while we were at work, would they find evidence of heartfelt, full-hearted service? Or would they just find either literally pornography or figuratively the equivalent of it? Am I a serial complainer? you might ask yourself at work. Do I whine to people every chance I get, complain about my boss, forgetting that compared to most people that lived throughout human history, I have a pretty great job, honestly? Don't forget that. No matter what you do, you have a better job than most people in the world today and most people throughout all of human history. And the other way of asking all of this is, Lord, have I been functionally an atheist at work? Have I lived as if I wasn't living all of my moments and my days under your presence? And then repent and decide to serve the Lord Jesus afresh. So that's our first thing. We want, uh, first of all, to... Where's my outline? What did I say the first point was? Lock in. Right, thank you. To lock in... This morning I was preaching and I got towards the end of the sermon and realized I didn't even have the last two pages of my notes. I freaked out so much. Anyway, so they're here. Second thing is leave behind. Leave behind. What are we leaving behind? We're leaving behind the temptation to accrue more and more power to ourselves. We're leaving behind the lust for power. This is especially in verse 9 here. Let me tell you another story about my work in Korea. Um, we had an administrative assistant in the high school, and her name was Ellen. In fact, her, her name still is Ellen. And uh, she's Korean, and she's actually an alumni of our school. And she went to Emory University in the States, which is a very well-renowned school. And she came back to Korea, and she got what was, for a Korean, um, a really great job at one of these major companies. Think of the major Korean company, companies, Samsung, Hyundai, Uh, those kinds of places, right? She was working for one of them. And it was the kind of job that Koreans dream about getting. It means security for your family and all the rest. But, and she told me this firsthand, it was also the kind of company culture that makes a lot of Koreans want to leave Korea and work for somebody else. All of the standard pressures were there. Pressures to perform when people are watching, to stay late, and whenever your boss said it's time to go out and we're going to drink soju all night, 
and you're going to stay until I decide I've drank enough. Um, All of these pressures were on her there. And then she got the opportunity to come back to our school where she graduated and just be a plain old administrative assistant. In so many ways, a step down for her professionally. But she jumped on the chance to do it because she heard rumors about And even though it was a bunch of moody millennials uh, that worked for my boss, sorry if you're in that category, um, I sort of am too, uh, my boss valued each of them. And not just their performance, but he sought to understand them as people. He wanted them to thrive professionally and personally, and he checked in on them all the time to make sure that they were. It would have never occurred to my boss in Korea to do what Paul forbids here, verse 9, to threaten employees. That was just nowhere in my boss's heart. My boss had taken to heart what Paul says at the beginning of that verse. Masters, do the same to them. Do what? In other words, when we have authority over those whose bodies and minds are engaged in work under our supervision this time, then we are to supervise them to be their boss as unto the Lord. If we're under someone, we work as unto the Lord. If we're over someone, we manage them and we boss them as unto the Lord. We too must render service with a good will as unto the Lord and not unto men. That's our job if we're in charge of anybody. Jesus wants bosses to boss as if Jesus were their employee, right? So you're not just an employee and you're thinking, Jesus is my real boss. You're the boss, and now you're thinking, what if Jesus worked for me? (laughs) How would I nurture and care for him if he was my employee? (laughs) After all, aren't humans made in the image of God? And so if you're the boss... In a way, you are supervising the representative of Jesus on earth if you supervise a human being. If you supervise like machines and stuff, then I don't know what to tell you. I don't know how this applies. But most of you supervise, if you supervise people, the image of God. And so a picture of Jesus. And so it wouldn't hurt to ask ourselves if we have this kind of responsibility. How would I exercise power and authority over my workers if that one of them were actually Jesus incognito. Whenever we have power, we're going to be tempted to exercise it by lording it over other people. And that, Jesus says, is what the nations do, he tells his disciples. That's what the world does. That's the worldly way. Consolidate your power. Make yourself look good. Keep people in their place and keep them especially submissive to you. But the disciples and we are called to exercise authority with love and mercy and justice. Verse 9, He who is both their master and yours is in heaven. Now, you may not be anybody's boss. It's possible. Uh, Maybe you won't ever be. But there are dynamics in every group, in every working relationship, in every team, in every social environment, even in every family, where There are people in power and people with less power. People with authority and those with less. There's power gaps and differentials. And sometimes you will find yourself as the one with more power. There will always be situations in which you have some power on some smaller scale. But regardless of the scale 
of your power and authority, regardless of the formality of your authority. Maybe it's just informal. You have the opportunity to use that authority and that power to do what? To bless and not to curse. You have the chance to use your power to create an environment in which others are empowered to be faithful and fruitful, to thrive. You have an influence on every culture in which you live and work, whether it's for good or for ill. My old pastor used to say, you're always breathing out. What is the atmosphere that's being created as you breathe out? Is it toxic or is it life-giving? And so in a world where everybody seems to be scrambling for whatever they can get, jousting for social position, and seeing other people maybe as an asset to get what they want at best, but an obstacle in a lot of cases, then we as Christians, we flip the script, don't we? We do the opposite. We as Christians have an opportunity to shine instead as lights in the world. Think about it this way. If you're the boss, if you're a parent, if you're in charge in some way, you could easily, easily be the best boss that your employees have ever had. Wouldn't be that hard. You could easily be the most giving and nurturing supervisor or team leader that your coworker has ever had. You could easily say and do things that provoke people to ask, what is the reason for the hope that you obviously have? In the Spirit's power, you can remind people of Christ, remind people of a Jesus that they've never even met. So why not take that opportunity? Why not live as if the Lord Jesus were really your boss? Why not dedicate your authority as well as your submission to Jesus at the beginning of each new day, whether you're boss or whether you're employee? So we're going to lock in. We're going to do something. Look, we're going to lose. Leave behind. Very good. Our, our lust for power. And then finally, the last L, we're going to look to Christ's servant lordship. So let's take a look at this finally. You know, whenever somebody gets up here and exhorts you, whenever somebody says, hey, church, hey, people that are following Jesus, come on, get real. Follow him for real this time. You know, the first temptation, of course, is to be, wake up on Monday morning and be like, yeah, I'm going to do it. Or some of you that are maybe not so, um, I don't know, whatever it is that, that makes people feel that way, you're going you're gonna to say, I just, I just can't do that. I just can't do it. It's too hard. My boss is too big of a jerk. Have you met my boss? The reality is that <clears throat> no matter where we're at, emotionally or otherwise, spiritually, we cannot just decide and then muster up the, sp- the strength from our own will to be the best boss that our employees have ever had, to be the best workers that our bosses have ever had. Why? Because the reality is all of us are too tangled up in our sinful nature, in the temptations that are all around. We're too tangled up with mixed motivations. We're too prone to uh, follow the temptations for the lust for power. And honestly, like we're too tired half the time to just by pure willpower, be awesome to our colleagues, to our bosses, to the people that work for us. We can't 
we're too tired to bear the weight of this kind of glory. And it's a glorious thing, this thing that we're, we're trying to pursue. We can't do it in our feeble strength. On our own, we will fail miserably to put any of this into practice. And this means, of course, the only way that these notions of, you know, better employee, better boss could ever really be actualized in your life is if your life is empowered from somewhere else besides in here. If your life is empowered by the one who, after all, used his power, how? As we've just sung, for service. The one who submitted himself in love. There's a wonderful place in John's Gospel, chapter 2, where John tells us that Jesus did not give himself, did not commit himself to any man because he knew what was in man. Jesus had done miracles, and people wanted to exploit his powers, right, for their selfish ends. They wanted to conscript his work for their own causes, whether for their own wealth or their health or to overthrow the Roman authorities, maybe. And Jesus, John tells us, refused to give himself to people like that. Tough, right? One chapter later, though, nevertheless, John tells us that these, in the most famous passage in the Bible, that these, people like that, are the very people that God so loved, even though they were so bad that they could have been condemned and definitely needed saving, that God so loved those people and did what? That he gave his own son. Jesus is there for the express purpose of giving his life for these people, and yet John tells us a little bit earlier that he did not give himself to any of them. So what's going on here? Did Jesus give or did he not? Did the Father give or did he not? Are we supposed to give? I thought you told us we were supposed to give. Or are we not? What do we do here? Jesus is serving and blessing people. Even more, he's giving signals, isn't he, through his miracles, that he is beginning to reverse the curse and beginning to redeem the world. And he looks at people who are in need with compassion. He touches the leper and looks at the sick and the fearful in the eyes. But he's not going to be enslaved, is he, by the evil or even the ignorant agendas of people. He manages to give and to be careful not to give himself. What he's doing is exactly what Paul is telling us to do here. He is, the Lord Jesus is, serving these people, all of them. But he's doing it as unto his heavenly Father. He knows that he can become popular and get praise by doing the things that everybody wants him to do. But because his heart is captive to his heavenly Father, he is able instead to give them not what they want, but what they actually need. He can give his service to people out of submission to his heavenly Father, rather than out of a need to be applauded by those people. And ultimately, Jesus' commitment to do this, to serve his heavenly Father, even as he gives us what we really need and not what we want, is ultimately, of course, what saves us, isn't it? He had a zillion opportunities to grab praise and glory from people. He had a zillion opportunities 
to really press his authority down on people and get them to submit. But he chose instead to serve them. How? By serving his heavenly Father. He gave his heart, his soul, his body in love to sinners. How? By giving himself heart, soul, body, mind, and strength to his heavenly Father. Remember when he's in the garden and he says, Father, you know I'm here just to do your will. But I'm terrified of what I'm about to go through. Is there another way, perhaps? But nevertheless, Father, you know I'm locked into your purposes. So if this is the way, I'm all in. I'll serve them in this way, if you call me to. He sets his face as he's heading towards Jerusalem for the last time. Uh, The prophets and then the gospel writers tell us, like flint, locked in to Jerusalem, no matter what anybody else's agenda was, he's going to go to the cross. He's going to take on all of its shame in submission to his heavenly Father, with whom he is the equal and has been for all eternity. But he submits himself to his Father in order to love and to serve sinners like you and me. While we were bond slaves, body, soul, mind, and spirit, of sin and death and hell, and he was utterly free, he took on our bondage to sin. He submitted to a cursed death. He freed us in doing that to live in the wide open expanses of the kingdom of God. What a glorious thing. And in dying, he trusted that his heavenly father would ultimately vindicate him. Whether men and women praised him or not, he loved us fully by loving us as unto his heavenly father. And so the response from us is, yes, absolutely. We ought to stop before we go to work tomorrow and consecrate ourselves afresh to each new workday, like I said earlier. Yes, we ought to do regular audits on our lives, on our words, on our actions, on our attitudes. Repent where they don't conform to Jesus. Yes. But the only way that we can be empowered to live lives of actual, real, submissive service, the only way that we can wield our limited power as a blessing and not as a curse is by constantly and rhythmically over and over in prayer without ceasing, looking outside of ourselves and looking toward the Lord of heaven. Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and he's enthroned there and he's pleading for our help and for our strength in temptation. When we look to the Lord Jesus, he will show us the glorified scars on his hands. He'll remind us that he loved us faithfully all the way to the end, that he loves us struggling people, even as we are right now. And he loves us with a big, full heart, while at the same time, he's Lord. Isn't that just the most staggering thing about being a Christian? Your boss loves you with all of his heart. And when we live out of a consciousness that Jesus is Lord and servant, that he's seated on the throne, but that he's intimately here in love with us, then finally we'll be ready to repent and make things right when we blow it, when we fail to serve well, when we fail to lead well. And we'll be ready 
when we're commended and treasured and praised by other people, as we sometimes are, we'll be ready to say, look, not to me, but, but to the name of the Lord Jesus be the glory and the honor. Shall we pray together?